God, we ask that you would open the eyes of our minds and our hearts, that we might hear what you have to say to us through these words this morning. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, over the last few weeks, we've been reading some stories from Luke's Gospel. We had uh, Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to questions from a law expert. And then we had Jesus at the home of Mary and Martha, Martha rushing round and Mary not, and Jesus saying some things into that situation. And then we had Jesus teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer last week. And today, we have Jesus teaching by another parable or story um, about the rich man and his possessions. But before we look at the detail of that story, I want to step back a moment and look at all these pieces together. Because this whole chunk of Luke's gospel that we're working our way through starts in chapter 9. If you want to flick back to it, it's chapter 9, verse 31, which is the key point. Chapter 9, verse 31, isn't the one that I'm supposed to be looking at, although it's what I've got written down here in front of me. Um, Let me see if I can find it. No, it is in chapter 9, but I won't hold you up by looking for it. There's one verse in chapter 9 where Jesus um, says, or where, where Jesus and his disciples set out for Jerusalem. And that's the key point. If you can find it, you can tell me afterwards. But um, 51, thank you. Chapter 9, 51. Yeah, you're right. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So up until that point, he'd been in Galilee. Um, and not too far from where he'd, uh, he'd been brought up and been living at that point. And at the end of the story, of course, he ends up in Jerusalem with the crucifixion and the resurrection. But there's this bit in between, as Luke sets it out, where he turns his face to Jerusalem and he makes the journey with his followers. And it goes from the middle of chapter 9 to chapter 19, where we get the story of um, him going into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, the triumphal entry, which is the point at which he enters. But in between those two points, he's traveling with his followers. They're um, taking a journey, a physical journey, but also a journey of learning. Because all through this period, Jesus is teaching them how to be a disciple. He's telling them what they're going to need to do when he's gone, what it's going to be like, how they need to be to continue to be his followers. So that's why we get these series of vignettes that Luke presents us with. Um, The Good Samaritan teaching about overcoming prejudice, about giving oneself to help one another. Uh, And then words to Mary and Martha about really listening to each other and to God, about balance between activity and stillness. And then his teaching about the importance and the approach to prayer, the Lord's Prayer as an attitude towards a generous God. And now today's piece. So you see it's kind of building up a picture of what a follower of Jesus should be like. I want to ask you now to invite you to read this passage again, to read what we've just read, which is Luke 12, starting at verse 13. I'll read it to you, and you follow it through, 
I'd like to know what you notice about it. What is it you think Jesus is saying? Um, as you read it through, maybe not so much what you think he's saying, but what you notice, what puzzles you, what sticks out to you, this whole piece. Because that's how we begin to tease out what it might have to say to us. Let me read it to you, and you either listen or follow it in, front of, uh, in, in the Bibles in front of you. Luke 12, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me as a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store things up for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Have a look, read it through again. What do you notice? What sticks out? not a trick question. Anybody prepared to venture a thought? what you notice. No right or wrong answers. Completely selfish. Yeah, he is pretty selfish, isn't he? He's, um, yeah, he's Mr. Greedy, I think. Presumably his original barns represented what he needed to store over the winter. He already had barns, and that's presumably built to be the right size for what he needed. But this year, the man had an abundance of grain. By hard work, by good management, Good things. But when he asks the question, what shall, I, what shall I do because I've got no place to store my crops? His answer is not, if my barns are full, this must be surplus, I'll share it with my friends and neighbours. Could have said that. I'll give it away to those who need it more than I do. Because once I've filled my barns, I've got enough. No, what he says is, if my barns are full, I'll build bigger barns. It's perhaps significant then that in the story he didn't have any friends. His thinking is all done to himself. When he says, what shall I do with my extra grain? Something I was reading in preparation made a link with The Simpsons, with Montgomery Barnes, Burns, Montgomery Burns, sorry, Barnes on the brain, Montgomery Burns. 
I haven't watched Simpsons for a long time, so you'll have to make the judgment about whether that's kind of an accurate parallel between Mr. Burns and the rich fool. Um, but yeah, definitely selfish, definitely greedy. What else do you notice? Yeah. Yes, yes. It starts off maybe being an issue of fairness. And then Jesus actually says, no, hang on a minute, that's the wrong question that you're asking. Um, and he brings in this other idea. Um, I wonder why this question that the man asks at the beginning, teacher, get my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Just a man in the crowd calling this out. Jewish inheritance law is quite complicated, or what it was then. Um, and it might well not be clear that the appropriate division uh, what the appropriate division of the inheritance should be. Um, and sometimes the authorities would have to make a decision about how things needed to be divided up. And obviously the man in the crowd thinks he's not getting his due and he wants someone to pronounce on it. So that's why the question. But why the question now? Well, I'm speculating a bit here, but it might be because Jesus, not long before, if you sort of look back a few paragraphs, He'd been making a sweeping criticism of the legal system, um, talking about the Pharisees and the lawmakers and so on. And according to Luke, the way Luke lays it out, he'd just made much of the fact that the Holy Spirit would teach them what to say to the authorities whenever they were up against them. Now, of course, Jesus' point about the Holy Spirit giving people what they needed to say to the authorities was about when his followers came up against the authorities for being his followers, Nothing to do with inheritance law or sort of legal debates. But this man misses the point. You can almost hear him putting these two things together, saying to himself, okay, this man Jesus, this teacher, he rubbishes the lawyers, and he says this Holy Spirit will give us what's what. So, okay then, teacher, tell my brother to give me what belongs to me. But to Jesus, it's not just that he's the wrong person to ask, but it's the wrong question to be asking. And he illustrates why this is with this kind of cartoon story, this caricature, with a very simple but exaggerated character to make the points. What else do you notice? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's something about his independence and his kind of um, sense of entitlement, perhaps, to what, he's, to what he's earned. You can just hear him thinking, I'm good at what I do, I deserve this. And in fact, you can hear that sense of entitlement in the words of Jesus' questioner as well. Um, and in the mind of the invisible older brother, who's dividing the inheritance in whatever way he was dividing it. And how many times do we hear that on the news? People saying, I've worked all my life and or, I deserve it. They don't deserve it. How much do our kids say? It's not fair. But going back to the parable, God says to the man, 
This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? That sense of entitlement wasn't properly placed, was it? Because what's it all for, the things that we have, the things that we work for? Don't we hold everything that we have in trust for the Creator as part of his project that we work with him together? It's not kind of ours in that narrow sense. The psalmist writes, and we quite often sing it, All I am and all I have are yours. Unless you build the house, we're building it in vain. It's not that we don't build or that we don't provide for ourselves and our families, but we do it with a sense of God's generosity, of working alongside him, of sharing. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, focus on possessions and what he has. Um, consumerism, perhaps. You kind of use a term that seems to be around a lot. Some contemporary commentators, people looking at our society, believe that we consume, we buy stuff, as a way of affirming our identity and our worth as human beings. Comedians joke about it, don't they? Whether we're Blackberry or iPhone people, it's kind of all the brand stuff, or whether the salad drawer in the fridge contains iceberg or rocket, or whether your child's buggy has three wheels or four, all these things are supposed to say something about us. I wonder, is it that we express ourselves in what we wear or eat or own? Or is it that the lure of these things and the way they're presented to us as aspirations shape us, shape our identity and our sense of worth? Maybe make us feel a little bit disappointed in ourselves that we can't quite live up to whatever it is that's being presented out there. Our culture and our media seem to say that my worth and my importance and my identity is tied up in what I own and eat and wear. But Jesus says, life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Our identity and our worth is that we're made and cared for by God. It's not tied up with what we have but what we share and how we serve. Verse 23, just a little bit further on. That's where Jesus says those words, life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. It's a bit countercultural in our society as it is today. And just as a quick aside... We can be trapped by the world of money and possessions in several ways. If you click on one, imagine this exchange between three teenagers. I'm going to Florida again this year. So I've chosen Florida at random. There's no particular aspersions I'm casting on Florida. The second one says, might go to Florida if I can persuade mum to work more hours. The third one says, it's not fair, everybody else goes to Florida, we stay with Nan at Clacton. Rich and complacent, perhaps, certainly complacent. Envious, over here. Resentful, over here. All of these 
are trapped in some ways by money and possessions. Easy trap to fall into. One which we need to keep bringing before God so that we're not trapped by these things, by consumerism, by what our society expects of us. Do you want to go back again so we can look at the picture instead? Thank you. Anything else? No. No, he didn't. He was very independent. Independent of people and independent of God. Overconfidence in his own resources, perhaps. Doesn't need anybody else. His land, his grain, I can look after myself. Don't need anyone else to tell me what to do. Don't need your help. I'm sorted. We've learned to be independent, haven't we? That's what um, Western society emphasises. And it's not a bad thing, per se. But sometimes our habits of independence, our need to be independent, get in the way of us being dependent on God and accepting help from others and offering it to others. Do we get a bit over-independent sometimes? I know I do. There's one other question that I wanted to ask myself when I read this. Yeah, one other. It's all right. Is Luke anti-possessions in what he writes? Well, scholars have debated this. So who am I to leap into this debate? But let me give you some thoughts. There are other warnings in Luke's gospel about riches. In chapter 8, verse 14, it's in the middle of the parable of the sower. If you know that, feel free to flick to it if you want to. Chapter 8, verse 14, is the bit about the seed that fell among thorns. Um, the explanation of the parable it says, The seed that fell among thorns stands for all those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. It's another warning about being distracted by possessions and pleasure and hedonism, being distracted by it. And then another example, chapter 18 verses 18 to 25, the story of the rich young ruler. He's challenged to sell everything he has in order to have treasure in heaven. But there are also some positive examples in Luke's gospel about people and wealth. It kind of, you know, balances these up. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, there's a list of women who uh, help the early Jesus movement, if you like. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. They obviously had some kind of wealth and some kind of possessions. And they were using it to help Jesus and his movement. Another example, chapter 19 Verses 1 to 10 is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who when he met Jesus, repents of his cheating ways and gives half his assets away. But he doesn't give all of them. So I think these positive examples are less about having and more about giving. 
They suggest that Luke's issue with possessions is not what a person has, but what a person does with his or her possessions or wealth. And that's quite an important distinction. Just one final word before I bring these thoughts to a conclusion. If there's anyone here this morning thinking, well, that's easy for you to say, all this stuff about not worrying about food and clothes, if you're struggling with debt or struggling to make ends meet, or if you're living somewhere where having food on the table is literally a matter of life and death, then what does this have to say into those situations? Well, to start with, in the bit that follows, in verse 30, Jesus says, your father knows that you need these things. He's not denying the need for those basics of life. And the parable itself is actually aimed at those who are letting what they have or aspire to have distract them from their allegiance to Jesus. And actually that can happen however much we have. It can still be, it can still get in the way, it can still be a distraction. But our Father knows that we do need the basics of life and does know if we're struggling. That's not really the primary point of the parable. So in telling the story of the rich man and his barns, Jesus is speaking against, well, a number of things. If you click on a couple of slides, it'll be now. Just as a sort of summary, he's speaking against these things. The over-independence that has us relying solely on our own resources. He's speaking against a sense of personal entitlement to what we have, whether we've worked for it or not. Speaking against a selfishness about possessions and against deriving our identity and our worth from what we own or from what we don't own. And I think those are the things that we've begun to pick out. So thank you for that. This man had lots of material wealth, but he wasn't truly rich. Question to ponder. What is it that makes us really rich? I'm going to finish by reading from the Message Bible. I'm going to read a little bit from the next section in our Bible, but I want to read it in this version. Because this is teaching on discipleship, instructions for kingdom seeking and kingdom growing. Just listen to this and see what you take from it. Jesus continued this subject with his disciples. Don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or if the clothes in your cupboard are in fashion. There is far more to your inner life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the ravens, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, carefree in the care of God. And you count far more. 
What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, not be so preoccupied with getting, so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Amen.